0: Man in the Window contains depictions of sexual violence and is not suitable for
1: everyone. Please be advised. Lieutenant Mike Garlock of the Auburn Police Department spends nearly a year laboriously whiting out names and addresses from more than a 1,000 1970s duty reports he hands me in small batches. What strikes him in all of this? is Patrolman Joseph D'Angelo's consistency.
0: A victim or person or citizen called up asking for an officer, and he was sent, and that was about
1: it. He consistently lacks initiative.
0: Officer D'Angelo, at the time, just handled his calls for service, and that's what he did. And it didn't seem to me like there was much, in terms of what they call in our profession, is proactivity, uh, which would mean looking for suspects or looking for crimes that might be occurring or suspicious people or prowlers.
1: D'Angelo does show initiative in pulling over young people, particularly women, to cite them for alcohol. He hauls two teen girls to jail for stealing, yes, two candy bars. A disquieting insensitivity sometimes bleeds through his reports. D'Angelo quotes a woman getting obscene phone calls as saying her harasser has a, quote, pleasant voice. Read alongside the East Area Rapist Crime Reports, these duty logs paint an odd juxtaposition of small-town policing with a predator more obsessed than skilled. There's the officer, D'Angelo, who escorts citizens to make bank deposits, gives a drunk a ride home, Checks an empty house for a woman so she knows she's safe. Most of the attacks occur when he has a few days off. His wife told the court she thought he was often gone pheasant hunting, but some begin within an hour of coming off duty. One night in November 1977, D'Angelo finishes writing up a loud car stereo complaint at about 10 p.m. By 11, The rapist is heard on the patio of a woman 30 miles downriver on La Riviera Drive. For four hours that night, neighbors in a one-block area hear him try their patio doors or scratch at their windows as he crisscrosses his path like a weaving spider. This kind of neighborhood canvas is his usual pattern, and those inside are unaware what fate they've just escaped. One household this night... Is not so lucky. At 3 a.m., D'Angelo sneaks into the home of a 13 year old, ties up her mother, and sodomizes the child, and he is back on duty later that afternoon, back to the barking dogs, the loitering kids, and the fighting couples. The day after that rape, a call comes into the Auburn PD from a young man downtown. This one report among the hundreds sticks with Lieutenant Garlock because the caller tells the dispatcher.
0: So I know the identity of the East Area Rapist. I'm going to be calling the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office. The citizen didn't disclose who he thought it was and
1: he didn't say
0: anything more details.
1: Details that everyone wants. By November of 1977, finding the identity of the East Area Rapist is a big deal. The people of Sacramento for a year have been tracking his attacks by the count carried in the newspaper headlines. He's now up to 27 rapes. Vigilantes patrol the streets and backyards are lit up by the searchlight of the sheriff's new helicopter. The cop Auburn dispatches to check on this tip is Joseph D'Angelo.
0: What was D'Angelo thinking when he's actually taking that statement from that Guy. was he worried that does he think it's me <laughs> or you know my description or something like that
1: d'angelo closes the file by labeling the tipster as quote very hbd
0: which meant had been drinking and that was the extent of it
1: only d'angelo knows what the tipster said From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, I'm Paige St. John, and this is Man in the Window. This is Episode 10, Evil. In the two years since arrest, victims of the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker, Golden State Killer, or whatever other name the crimes of Joseph James D'Angelo are known by, those victims are strapped to a roller coaster, never knowing where it's headed and when it will turn their worlds upside down. But for three extraordinary days in August 2020, they are the ones in control. D'Angelo has admitted to crimes against 87 people in 11 counties. As part of the plea agreement, prosecutors have asked that he be sentenced to 26 life sentences, 12 of them to run consecutively. Sentencing is in a few days. But first, in a small, old-fashioned courtroom on the first floor of the Sacramento County Courthouse, the victims of D'Angelo's crimes have a chance to speak Judge Michael Bowman presides over what will be a marathon, three-day hearing.
2: Remember, you waited a long time for this. There's no need to hurry. You need as much time as you want to speak and say what you need to say. For the record, Mr. DeAngelo is present. He is represented by counsel.
1: Most of the benches for this high-profile proceeding are empty. Because of COVID-19, only a few victims and their supporters can enter at a time and others wait their turn out in the hall. A few case watchers, largely women who believe they were stalked or raped by D'Angelo, have been given seats by lottery. The rest of the world is dialed in through court YouTube or TV satellite feed. D'Angelo and his two defense lawyers sit at a table facing the jury box, which holds two reporters. I'm assigned the seat directly across from D'Angelo. This close... It's clear D'Angelo is fully present. He finds a focal point, and he holds his eyes there, the water bottle before him, a spot on the wall, my face. For a brief while, I return the stare, wondering who will blink.
2: Both sides ready to proceed? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, my understanding, moving on to the first victim impact statement, uh... The defendant admitted to the uncharged acts as follows. Rape of Jane Doe, 14, having occurred...
1: The first rape. Thank you. My name is
3: Karen Vayer. I am the sister of Phyllis Henneman, who is known as rape victim number one also. I'm speaking her impact statement because she is uh, ill at home. On June 17, 1976, I went to bed not knowing that in just a few hours... My life as I knew it would change.
1: (laughs) So it begins. In 54 different and deeply personal ways, victims and their families tell of tragedy and triumph. They speak about who they were and who they became, of baseball bats and guns by the bed, locks and guard dogs, broken and scattered families. I woke up knowing I would never be a child again and although I was truly grateful to be alive, I also felt that I had died. I didn't understand what kind of God would allow this to happen to me when I tried so hard to be good. The darkness
4: was overwhelming.
0: I wanted to cry, but nothing came out. I went outside by myself for a long time and continued trying to feel something.
4: I tried to escape my fear with alcohol, but medicating myself did not work.
3: I was an 18-year-old young woman, barely an adult, and a suspect in my own father's murder. Thank you, Joe. Thanks. That was awesome. Your Honor, I ask you to imagine what that does to a young 18-year-old. I've lived with the shame for decades. It's your shame, Joe.
1: They tell of trauma that shadowed their lives, even upon D'Angelo's arrest. And I was
4: hospitalized 5150 for three days in June of that year. I was emotionally exhausted, unstable, and not able to deal with reality. Most can't look
1: at him, others glare at D'Angelo as they insult and damn
4: him. A quarter of me being a Christian, I want to say to you may God have mercy on your soul. But then there's another three-quarters of me that just want to tell you, buddy, to rot in hell. What a despicable piece of humanity you are. Did his little penis drive him to be so angry all the time?
1: And she extends her middle finger at D'Angelo. But these are nice people, and invariably they apologize to the court the three days allotted to victims are not so much a tolling of the savagery of one man, but testimony to the inherent goodness and resilience of human spirit.
4: As a Christian, I have forgiven you. I know forgiveness is important to heal one's soul. I forgive you. You victimized me, but I am not a victim.
1: I want to tell you what I was constantly thinking during the rape itself. I kept on saying to myself, you are not going to get me. You are not going to get me. You are not going to get me. I choose to live my life.
0: We have lived with this for 44 years as a family, and we are here to say that our mother is not Jane Doe number 22, and we are not just number 37 uncharged offense. We are the family of Winnie Schultz, and we have all survived because of her bravery and resolve to do whatever it took to save herself and her family.
1: When we first met, I asked D'Angelo's first known rape victim, Phyllis Zitka-Henneman, what she sought from the legal system. I would like him just to stand up and, and be man enough to fess what he did. And if not, she wanted D'Angelo to live to see the case through.
0: Because if he died in prison, that, you know, that, or in, in jail, I mean, that's, that's an easy way out. And he doesn't deserve the easy way out. I'm sorry. That's vindictive of me, isn't it?
1: <laughs> but Phyllis is diagnosed with liver cancer. In July, she watched D'Angelo's plea hearing from a hospital bed, crying when other victims stood up for her at the moment D'Angelo admitted to her rape. And when a doctor walked in, Phyllis craned her neck to see the TV. I says, well, I'm sorry. This is more important than you are at this point. Phyllis's cancer is untreatable. She's not eligible for a transplant. By the August impact statements, she's reliant on her own wheelchair, her voice weakening. For a woman who spent a life, to borrow one of Phyllis's favorite phrases, staying off the pity pot... These days are hard. Writing the words for her sister to read in court, Phyllis is more than ready to end her 43 year association with Joseph D'Angelo.
5: You know, I could be me again. And I'm not saying me wasn't affected by him, but, you know, it's still the current me. And, you know, once it's over, I don't have to go around saying,
1: oh, well, I happen to be victim number one of, of his which is the message Phyllis sends with her sister.
3: He deserves to spend the rest of his miserable life imprisoned. No more freedom for him. I quote my sister, I am not what happened to me, I am what I choose to become.
1: D'Angelo remains impassive, and each day appears smaller in his wheelchair. From 215 pounds at arrest, he's now down to less than 150 His feet swell, and the leg shackles, hidden from public view, cut into his ankles. The courtroom is cold. It's wildfire season, and air conditioners run full blast to cut the smoke. D'Angelo is rolled in on the last day with an oversized sweatshirt hanging oddly on him, like a toddler who squirmed while being dressed. He never bothers to fix it, making him look all the more shrunken. District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert yearns to show that this shriveled form is not the real Joseph D'Angelo.
3: When he came in for his plea on June 29, he was, you know, all curled up with his hands and you'd think he was basically drooling. I'm like, this is not how this is happening. This is not the man in the mirror. This is somebody different.
1: Different from the person she believes D'Angelo to be. Earlier in the week, Schubert's legal team asked Judge Bowman to let them show a video of D'Angelo in his cell at Friday's sentencing. It shows him climbing, it shows him moving about uh, and being very flexible and strong. Bowman doesn't see why that matters.
2: He has entered guilty pleas to 13 murders and he has admitted to being a serial rapist. I'm not sure whether or not he can move around inside his cell is particularly relevant.
1: The judge orders the jail video sealed. Victims, too, struggle to unmask D'Angelo, one perhaps harder than
4: the rest. My name is um, Jane Carson Sandler, and D'Angelo, I want you to look at me. Jane is one of the early Sacramento rape victims.
1: She's tried walking up to D'Angelo, mocked the size of his penis, and cursed him to no visible effect. Now, she thinks she has her weapon. She closes her statement with a sideways glance
4: want to especially thank a friend that's accompanying me today. And uh, that friend is Bonnie. Take your mask off.
1: Standing on Jane's left is Bonnie Colwell-Altson, the woman D'Angelo tried to marry, whose name he cursed during one rape. She reveals her face, and her glare at D'Angelo is withering. But his head is turned to the side, and his eyes... Never move. Only once do I see D'Angelo spring alive. It's the end of the second day, and the courtroom clears. Victims have left. D'Angelo's dark eyes suddenly snap around the room. The change that comes over him is startling, and a microphone catches snippets as he complains to his lawyers he can still see them. He jabs a finger at the source of irritation... Victims who hear of the incident will take a measure of satisfaction thinking they've finally gotten under D'Angelo's skin. But the person he points to is the reporter next to me packing his gear. It's a reminder. Whatever I think I see in D'Angelo, I do not know what's within With no trial, there's no public examination of Joseph D'Angelo, no debate of evil over insanity, and no psychiatric evaluations. But D.A. Schubert doesn't hesitate in her diagnosis. I think he's a highly intelligent individual, not necessarily by education, but
3: highly intelligent. And, you know, I don't want to sit there and keep
1: saying this, but I do believe he's a sociopath. Such tidy labels bolstered by references to Hollywood villains and invocations of Satan are about as close as most care to get to comprehending a man who raped and then bludgeoned a girl so savagely she swallowed her own teeth. Defense attorney Alice Michael understands it this way.
5: It's easier, you know, black and white is easier than gray.
1: But that narrative glosses over the life after murder of Joseph D'Angelo. The four decades he spent raising a family. Distilling D'Angelo down to an abstraction, like evil, avoids the need to ask whether the seeds of such violence lie in any of us. And it does no service to D'Angelo's victims, who heard the rapist sobbing in the kitchen, Mommy, please help me. Some thought it was a ruse. Others told police they believed the emotional breakdown was genuine. The defense team has gone the entire court case without talking to avoid pretrial publicity and because the client's so vilified, who will listen? But in an empty room in the basement of a county building, DeAngelo's lawyers agree to speak. Assistant public defender Alice Michael addresses the court with a hint of her native Texas in her voice and her empathy directed at the victim's. Assistant public defender Joe Cress, a tall, thin man with a classic goatee, is the one who often leans over to whisper into D'Angelo's one good ear. They emphasize that nothing minimizes D'Angelo's crimes or the pain of his victims.
0: These were horrible acts, and they're very difficult to read. There's a lot of darkness, a lot of sadness.
1: I think what
5: I would say is he's, I don't believe that He is the man today that he was when those crimes were committed. Not that that means in any way he shouldn't be punished for them, but he basically led two different lives. And of course, that doesn't provide any comfort to the victims.
1: But they push back at the notion that he has spent the past two years trying to manipulate the court. His refusal to look at victims, for instance.
5: If they look at the person, they're staring them down. You know, if they're impassive, they're cold and unreacting, you know, God forbid if they react. So I think it's kind of a catch-22 where there's no real way that people are going to be satisfied.
1: They challenge D.A. Schubert's claim that D'Angelo is pretending to be frail, an act that Schubert says is a bid for a cushier prison assignment.
0: He was in a wheelchair the first day we got him out of the wheelchair after that. He wasn't in a wheelchair again until June 29th when security put him back in the wheelchair, when everything was locked up. So there's no incentive for him to create any false narrative at that point.
4: So
1: then why why is uh, D.A. Schubert doing this? What, just, what does she have to gain by creating this persona?
5: You know, it's, I guess it's consistent with the he's this horrible, manipulative, evil person with not everything he does is equal it plays into that narrative
1: the Hannibal Lecter narrative
5: Yeah.
1: Michael reads in court a letter from D'Angelo's sole surviving sister
5: as I think back and try to more clearly understand it all so many things come to mind don't misunderstand that I am searching for an excuse for it all because I'm not I do more or less blame our father in part. He was a stern military career man and also a womanizer. He was also responsible for causing abuse in our family. There were so many other things that Joe faced, and I'm sure he couldn't cope with it all. Of course, it will never justify what has happened.
1: Cress reads a letter from a niece.
0: As I sit down to write this letter, I realize there's only one place to start. I wish my deepest sympathy, sorrow, and pain, and pain relief to all of the victims. I cannot imagine what any of you endured. I'm simply writing this letter to tell you I do not know the person known as the Golden State Killer. I know him as my Uncle Joe, whom I love clearly. My Uncle Joe was always my hero.
1: And from the niece of D'Angelo's wife... My home
5: life was troubled. I was verbally and physically abused by my dad. I didn't want to live anymore. Joe stepped in and he is a part of why I am good, kind, and loving person I am today. This is my story. This is the truth.
1: D'Angelo's daughters asked through the public defender's office to be left alone by the media but a letter from one of D'Angelo's daughters is released by a court clerk to the press. Too late, lawyers get a judge's order sealing the letter. For three pages, she describes a man who doted on his daughter's pet rabbits and guinea pigs, made the girls' beds and cooked their meals, and worked past retirement to help put them through college. She writes, I could never tell you all the things my father did for me, because he always put me and my daughter first. He is the best father I could have had. She ends, My father has made me a better person, a successful person, able to contribute to society and help others in need. It takes, perhaps, the daughter of another serial killer to understand.
3: You struggle even, like, like should you even personally
4: be allowed to grieve the loss of this man because you're being told he's a monster and he's done monstrous things, but you did not know him as a monster.
1: Carrie Rawson's father is Dennis Rader. From 1974 to 1991, Rader killed 10 people in Kansas. The BTK strangler has in bind, torture, kill. Like D'Angelo, Rader pursued an education in criminal justice, enjoyed a uniform and authority, and like D'Angelo, Rader raised a family. I do
3: not know what D'Angelo's relationship was with with his family. But my father, I mean, he could be emotional and verbally abusive at times. But I adored my father. I mean, he was my best friend.
1: There are those who believe men like Rader and D'Angelo must be incapable of good. Carrie says they're wrong. Goodness was there often enough to overcome the bad, but also to help it hide.
3: And my dad had much good in him. And my dad also had the ability to control it, to stop it, very similar to D'Angelo. And that's why they were not caught.
1: When Carrie gathers the courage to speak publicly about being the daughter of a serial killer, she finds a receptive audience among D'Angelo's own victims. Some endorse her book on social media, Jennifer Carroll invites Carrie on her podcast. She, like the others, wrestled with seeing D'Angelo's children as anything but pawns, a cover story he created to help him hide. I remember what Kevin Tapia, who grew up in the house behind D'Angelo, said he witnessed a few months before the arrest.
2: I heard him laughing, and I looked over the fence because I was out here in the backyard, and he was there playing badminton with his daughter. They were just having a normal family moment.
1: Was that also a pretend life? Some of the victims said that
5: too, you know, that it was pretend, that was pretend, that was all a pretend life.
1: D'Angelo has refused since his arrest to speak to his family, including to his daughters. The only people D'Angelo has been known to confide in these past two years are uncertain if rational answers are possible, including from the killer himself.
4: Well, the question I keep coming
1: up, uh, that I keep hearing is, why? And that's not a question we can answer? We're not gonna, no. Do you think it's even what he understands? Don't know. No comment. Yeah, no comment. To win a sentence of death would have required a public dissection of Joseph D'Angelo's psyche. Life sentences can be dispatched without such scrutiny. DA Schubert satisfied that she knows enough.
3: I think one of the victims said killers are not born. I don't know if he was born or not. I don't know if it's genetic. I don't know if you took his brain apart and studied it, what it would show.
1: But it doesn't really matter
3: because he did it all. That's how I look at it.
1: But Schubert also has information the public's never seen. It takes a series of secretive meetings and confidential sources to find someone willing to show me the video of D'Angelo's questioning after arrest, which turns out to be 15 hours within the interrogation room over two days. The videos raise questions about how law enforcement handled the high-stakes case. They show courtroom remarks attributed to D'Angelo were out of context and incorrect. The confessions... Especially, Most of what D'Angelo says while in interrogation is whispered under his breath. With the volume cranked so high that I can hear the voices of people in the next room, I can just barely catch the rapid staccato of, It's so shameful I did all that, all because I was too weak to stand up. And a statement, I did all those things, isn't there. D'Angelo actually says... He was controlling me, controlling everything I did almost, or maybe always. When D'Angelo whispers, I've destroyed all their lives, it's clear he's talking about his daughters. Despite the difference, the Sacramento District Attorney's Office said the comments it attributed to D'Angelo were not taken out of context and reviewed by D'Angelo's own defense team. What is clear on the interrogation videos is that this is a man we've seen before: The troubled teen in 1963 who spends his nights out on the prowl. The Vasalia bedroom ransacker, cornered by Officer McGowan in 1975, who feigns feebleness before firing his gun. The rapist who weeps on the pillow of one victim or is heard arguing with someone in the kitchen and the shape-shifting shoplifter and the disgraced police officer in 1979 who drops his voice to a whisper when he tells an examiner he sought to kill his chief. Also in the room that night, here is the tragic father, a man who coveted a middle-class ideal, the happy families living in suburban innocence, who, when he could not appropriate it, sought to prey on and destroy it. Or if you believe the prosecutors, what happens after arrest is an act. D'Angelo is brought into interrogation at about 5.30 p.m. and questioned by Sacramento Sheriff's Detective Ken Clark. The detective who has doggedly hunted D'Angelo for years is friendly and accommodating. Clark arranges to remove the shackle cuffing D'Angelo to the table provides him a selection of soft drinks that are never touched. It's more than an hour before D'Angelo breaks his silence. What have I done? His voice, it's high and childish, and he talks like he's confused or simple-minded. Detective Clark says, well, I'd like to talk to you about it. But first... Clark offers D'Angelo something to drink, and he asks if police can go into D'Angelo's house to turn off the oven. D'Angelo had said he had a roast cooking when the surprise arrest came down. Clark tells D'Angelo he can see why he felt he had to shoot Brian Maggiore, the man who was chased down and shot when he and his wife came across D'Angelo on an evening walk. But, Clark says evenly, it seems to me you're the only one who knows why Katie had to die. Clark says he can tell from the odd kindness D'Angelo sometimes showed early victims, covering a shivering girl or loosening the gag on a man. The D'Angelo was conflicted. He coaxes him now to open up. He says, I don't judge people. The plan was for Paul Holes to come in next. But D'Angelo is starting to ask about a lawyer, and the team is afraid they might have to shut things down. So to speed things up, The DA's investigator from Ventura County is brought in. Steve Rhodes is cast as the tough cop. He bullies D'Angelo, tells the crumbling man he knows he's guilty. His semen was found inside a dead woman. Rhodes asks why D'Angelo is sobbing. He says, not sure anybody's going to cry tears for you. D'Angelo just stares back he and the two detectives sit motionless for so long that the video appears frozen. It's only when D'Angelo's alone, finally, that, almost imperceptibly, he starts to whisper. The barely audible words seem self-soothing. I've done nothing, I've done nothing. It's almost three hours in the interrogation when, left alone, D'Angelo drops his head into his hands, And the whispering takes on a new dimension. On the verge of tears, D'Angelo mutters, I've done nothing. I took control. His voice is flat and raspy, like the rustle of dead leaves. I got stronger. I got stronger. I got stronger. I finally took control. As the night wears on and the bullying becomes harsher, his muttering becomes more distraught. I took control. Pushed him out. D'Angelo says I pushed him out as if he's shoving someone right there. Five hours in at ten thirty PM. He'll use this particular name twice that night. Jerry. I pushed Jerry out. After I pushed him out I had a nice life, a happy life. Oh so happy. Oh, it was so wonderful. It was wonderful. It was so wonderful. He sighs, and his voice finally surfaces, now sounding every bit like a seven-year-old child. He was always there, always sending me out, always making me go out. I wasn't strong enough to stand him. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand didn't want to. I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to do those things. He made me. I wasn't strong enough to stand him. And he lets out a sob. Mom, he was so mean. He was so mean. Rotten, that old dead son of a bitch. He was mean and rotten. He was so mean and vicious. He ends, I just want to be with my mother. It sounds like a death wish. K. Louise D'Angelo Bosenko died ten years ago. The rapid whispering resumes, much of it unintelligible. My children are all suffering so bad. They are suffering horribly. It's so shameful. All because I was too weak. His hand over his face, he mutters, I don't remember any of it. What have I done? It's when D'Angelo whispers of his family, the detectives bring his daughters to the door. They're instructed not to cross the threshold. D'Angelo silently looks into the face of the first. When the second daughter wails, I love you, Daddy, he says softly, Go away. Go away. Go away. Goodbye. She obediently leaves. He continues repeating, Goodbye. Goodbye, even after the door has closed. He mutters and whispers for hours. The detectives read D'Angelo his Miranda rights several times, the right to remain silent, the right to an attorney. And D'Angelo asks about or for a lawyer at least six times over the next 24 hours. But the questions will not stop. Before he's taken away to booking at 2.30 a.m., D'Angelo says to himself, why won't Let me talk to an attorney. D'Angelo doesn't know it, but outside the room, an attorney from the Sacramento prosecutor's office has been listening in and coaching the officers on how to keep the interrogation going. It's important to say here the U.S. Supreme Court repeatedly has ruled that police must stop interrogation when someone in custody asks for a lawyer. The justices say it doesn't matter if the officers are from different jurisdictions taking turns and asking about different crimes. Had there been a challenge, the court could have suppressed anything D'Angelo said. Two of the agencies involved, the Ventura County DA's office and Irvine City Police, responded saying they believed the officer's conduct was appropriate. They described Miranda as governing what can and can't be used as evidence, a perspective Some legal scholars and defense lawyers consulted by the Times do not share. Irvine spokeswoman Sergeant Carrie Davies said it's not encouraged, but there are times officers should keep questioning a suspect, like the Golden State Killer. Maybe there were murders police didn't know about. But the chief deputy of the Sacramento District Attorney's Office contended that despite asking about And for a lawyer, in the DA's eyes, D'Angelo had not invoked his Miranda rights. More, though he was still in the interrogation room, his muttered remarks came when he was not actively being questioned. The first attorney D'Angelo requests is his wife, and he's told she refuses to come. A public defender learns about the arrest on the news, and she goes to the jail the next morning, but the sheriff's department refuses to let her see D'Angelo. So she finds a judge and gets an order appointing her as counsel, and she returns to the jail. The sheriff's department still turns her away. For eight hours, D'Angelo's lawyer is kept out. She stands on the sidewalk in frustration. While, on the day after arrest, she's trying to get in, D'Angelo is brought back into the interrogation room. Now, with a large bandage covering the top of the head that he buries in his beefy hands. Sources tell me that jailers contend D'Angelo rammed his own head into a wall. He's alone for several hours until detectives from Orange County show up. When they do, he says again, I want to talk to an attorney. With that said, the detective replies, do you mind if I just talk to you about this whole thing? I want to talk to an attorney. Well, just hear me out. They show D'Angelo pictures of murder victims and leave them alone again, the photos on the table. You don't get it, he whispers. I didn't kill people. It wasn't me. He reaches over to lift a photo and jerks away as if bitten. Oh, God, D'Angelo says. God damn it. I've never seen that stuff before. I mean, that's... God damn it.
2: Please remain seated and come to order. Department 24 is back in session. We're back on the record. People versus Joseph DiAngelo. Um, We'll turn to the defense as the defense wish to be heard.
1: The court has moved back to the Sacramento State Ballroom to accommodate all of the many victims and lawyers in the massive case. Deliberately hidden from view is the belly chain locking D'Angelo to his wheelchair. The Sheriff's Department has insisted on this added security. The prosecution teams take turns in a series of closing remarks requesting the harshest of penalties. It's finally time to pronounce D'Angelo's sentence. But first, following a secret script, Judge Bowman calls for a brief recess so D'Angelo can be wheeled off stage. And his chains removed then back in session bowman offers d'angelo a chance to speak the defense team has been considering this with their client for a long time
5: and once he started hearing the victim impact statements he felt very strongly that he wanted to do it again there's always the concern that what can you say that, that
1: will be enough Prosecutors debated the night before whether D'Angelo would go through with this. Many think D'Angelo will pass. But then, they see the deputies behind D'Angelo's wheelchair take a step back.
0: Mr. D'Angelo would like to make a brief statement. D'Angelo?
1: D'Angelo smoothly rises from his wheelchair, unassisted. His hunched shoulders pull back. His slumped spine is straight and his chest broad and flat. He has the form of an aged gymnast. In this moment, the PA system falters.
2: I've listened to all your statements, each one of them, and I'm truly really sorry to everyone i her. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, sir. Defense submitted.
1: As Judge Bowman takes the next 29 minutes to pronounce all of the charges and life sentences, Anne-Marie Schubert in Prosecutor's Row is struck by the sudden change she's just witnessed.
3: Very domineering, very tall,
1: really imposing, and
3: To some extent, it was just like, maybe he wants the last word. And that was like, you are not the man that you portrayed yourself to be.
1: More, Schubert knows what a letdown this apology is.
3: Pretty much the the most common question from all of these victims is, why? Why did you pick me or my family? I I mean, that's why when he stands up and says what he says, I'm like, is that it? That's all you got?
1: There's so much more D'Angelo could say if he chose.
3: And maybe it's a control thing for him because i he knows the answers to all of it. At the
1: front of the ballroom, Judge Bowman wraps up the case very quickly.
2: Mr. D'Angelo, you're now remanded to the custody of the sheriff of Sacramento to be delivered to the custody of director of corrections and rehabilitation to serve the remainder of your life in state prison. We are adjourned.
1: Phyllis Henneman saved her energy all week to be able to watch this moment in person. She's visibly exhausted as her sister rolls her out in her wheelchair and happy now to leave the case behind her. I was surprised he spoke.
5: Do I feel was sincere? I am...
1: It was just words. It was just words. What strikes Jane Carson Sandler isn't D'Angelo's brief apology.
4: I was totally surprised. Totally surprised when he stood up. How quickly he stood up and how unfrail, is that a word? (laughs) Unfrail he looked. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Do I believe anything that he said? No.
1: But D.A. Schubert isn't done with D'Angelo. She has something more to prove. With the judge gone and the court adjourned, prosecutor takes charge of the ballroom. All semblance of COVID-19 social distancing is dropped as media crews and crime victims crowd in. This will not be a normal post-court press conference.
3: So after the, uh, the last two years of court proceedings, many people have asked and wondered, really, who is Joseph D'Angelo? The truth of who Joseph D'Angelo is, lies not just in what happened in the courthouse,
1: but what has happened in his jail cell. Schubert does not play D'Angelo's interrogation scenes. She plays portions of the jail cell video that the judge sealed earlier in the week. On the screen, a 20-foot-tall Joseph D'Angelo stands erect in his cell and vigorously swings his arms above his head, exercising, his cane idle in the corner. In another clip, he presses a wet paper towel with his foot and smoothly sweeps his leg across the floor in large arcs, mopping every inch of his cell floor. The surprise in the ballroom is audible when Schubert shows the clip of D'Angelo climbing up onto a wall shelf to methodically set cards across a glaring fluorescent light. And Schubert flashes next to a photo of Gay and Bob Hardwick's living room the morning after Gay's rape. A towel is draped by her rapist over the television to soften the light. Like when
3: you see him doing the exact same thing with the light in the cell, 45 years later, that was to some extent an aha. I'm like, holy shit, he's exactly the same person he was 45 years ago.
1: Phyllis Zitka-Henneman's cancer progressed. In early November, several victims and one of the original case detectives gathered at her bedside for a small Christmas celebration. They sang Silent Night. She died a week later. Gay Hardwick received a written apology from the San Joaquin County District Attorney. And at 6.36 a.m. on November 3rd, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation showed up at the Sacramento County Jail and took Joseph D'Angelo away. Sacramento victims were alerted. Gay Hardwick, again, was left out. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, this is Part 10 of Man in the Window. D'Angelo's jail cell videos, maps, photos, and other information from the case can be found at latimes.com MITW. Also at the Times, you'll find exclusive reporting. Man in the Window was written and reported by me, Paige St. John. Original music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Music coordination and sound design by Marcelino Vilpondo. Production assistance from Tressa Verstig. Our editors of the Los Angeles Times are Steve Clough, Abby Fentress Swanson, and Shelby Grad. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery.